This segment of its rainmaking time is sponsored by the Sterling Hut, providers of Italian fine silver gifts for all of life's occasions. Go to the sterlinghut.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to its rainmaking time. This is Kim Greenhouse. I'm very excited today to welcome Daniel Hathaway. He is known as a recycling king. And after speaking with him for about an hour last week, I have to tell you that he is so experienced with agriculture, the bio industry, trees, updated and advanced information about composting. He is absolutely a treasure of information and experience about how we should be recycling. I think you're going to be very excited about what he has to say. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Daniel Hathaway to its rainmaking time. Good morning. Good morning to you and you all. Let's talk a little bit about your background. Share a little bit with the audience where you come from, what your experience is, and what your insight is about where everything should really be going with respect to recycling. Oh, boy, that's a long paragraph for three, but here we go. Here we go, Daniel. Okay, well... Let's see. Yeah, I was born in uh, Santa Barbara about 70 years ago and spent most of my young life in Southern California outside of two trips to Germany, once when I was seven and another when I was 14 for a year, which changed my outlook and allowed me to be this innovator that I am now. I saw that there were two similar but very different cultures, and I was outside both of them. My mother was a German, my father was American, but a consular embassy brat, so he didn't really understand America. He grew up in Europe. So uh, there I was in Southern California, got through high school, went into the Army, got out military intelligence, if that wasn't an oxymoron, but they taught me Malay, Indonesian, another language. As soon as I got out in November 65, I started looking for work and started climbing trees. The agricultural tree work at that time amounted to side trimming and topping miles of eucalyptus windbreaks down in Oxnard and Ventura. We chainsawed out old lemons to make room for interplanting avocados, the new crop. We cut down old avocado trees, MacArthur and Anaheim's, to make way for the new Hass and bacon varieties. We took out every other tree in lemon orchards to plant avocados and took out the lemons when the avocados got bigger. All of this produced huge amounts of brush. Uh, a lot of the farmers had a shredder that they mounted on the back of their tractor and drove over the piles of brush and shredded them. Uh, a couple of passes and there was just a carpet of mulch on the ground. Um, others were hired to do the work, other that kind of work. Finally, after getting to work in the cities, we did some work in Santa Barbara, Carpinteria, and Ventura as an adjunct to the Agricultural Bureau of Farm Service that my friend Nick Pendergast did. What amazed me was that we took stuffed the brush into a truck, the truck went to the dump, and all of the organic material, branches, everything was simply included in what was going to the landfill. I couldn't believe the waste. I had grown up knowing that there was compost and that the compost made the garden an absolute emerald jewel. And I thought if the cities took the same care of their brush like the farmers did, we wouldn't have so much of it plugging up the landfill. And later on, as it turned out, 20% of what goes to the dump is organic matter. 
And since garbage is a hundred billion dollar a year industry, then there's about $20 billion worth of yard waste that's going to the dump that doesn't really need to be there. Now, if cities would buy smaller tractors or use the tractors they have and buy these shredders and simply grind the brush in the neighborhoods where it grew up, we would have something for the land, a fair share for the land, because the ground knows what to do with it. It'll eat it right up. And the dump, they don't know what to do with it. They have to grind it up. They have to let it compost or heat and then cool back down. And then they mix it with dirt to cover the landfill with because they can't add it to the dump. It's too bioreactive. And if it gets put next to a load of fish guts and a box of Tide soap, you have a fire in the dump. Now, all dumps have fires, lots of them. And so this is one of the things that we have to get the organic material out of the dump so that the material doesn't catch on fire. And my other thing is I don't want all the material in the dump to biodegrade either because that's stuff that I want my grandkids' kids to have the right to sort it out because all landfills are required to have mining plans since 1985 with the Resource Conservation Act. What does that mean exactly when they're required to have mining plans? They have to put together a plan how they are going to dig and sort through the dump. There are many screening devices right now that that work. Uh, We can get the metal, the ferrous, the cans and iron is magnetic. Aluminum, surprisingly, is affected by it's called an eddy current, a small light current that changes the trajectory off the end of the elevator ramp so that it drops into a different box. The lighter fractions are used air separation. So the light plastic goes up into the sky and is sucked by another machine. It's really quite efficient. I can't imagine what it'll be in 30 years when all of this material, this world's treasure is locked up in our dumps. I don't want no bugs to eat it. It's all we got and we should keep it. We should pack the dump like we intend to mine it. I say, use balers. Baler is a solid object that we can run spectrography on and find out what's in it. And if it's too moist and has too much organic material, bake it apart so it won't catch on fire. And tag them all and construct the dump intelligently instead of an indiscriminate piling of our gross national product. Why do you say gross national product? Talk about that. Gross. Ugly. (laughs) I use... Our gross is the whole amount, but the grossness, the putrescibles, baby cack, steak, banana peels, all of those things are the putrescibles that come with household garbage that will produce methane in the dump. If it's failed, then we have a chance of controlling the methane somewhat. This pile of dump, only two out of the five wells that they drill for methane capture in a landfill, produce methane. It's very accidental. It isn't a given. So if we can inoculate the bales, we know what's in them. We can pack the dump intelligently in cells of household garbage that we put perforated pipes between the bales to capture the methane, and then we have a hot water manifold because it's a giant compost pile, and it'll heat up to 800 degrees and stay there for 40 years. Wow. Our dump should be a public trust depository, not a liability. Who owns the garbage, who owns this treasure, is an ugly fight coming up because there is so much value there. Who owns it? Does the county own it? The city own it? I lived in Hawaii 
And on the big island, we sighted a new landfill at Pu'uanahulu. And I got part of the dump split so that recyclables, cardboard, and things like that could be stored there, but they didn't have to go into the pit, which is lined, which is very expensive cubic storage space. But then Keola Childs, the councilman, came up, uh, had him ask waste management, who owns the garbage? After some talks, waste management agreed that after they mine it, Hawaii Island gets half of the profits which would probably be nothing but the idea that we set the precedent of who owns this resource. Now, all of the dumps in the world, when they figure out how valuable it is, they will lock down and lock their jaws. The only way we as people can take back this resource is to start practicing zero waste. Talk about that, because I'm fascinated with that. Talk about zero waste. Glad to. (laughs) It started as an idea, but now has international momentum. The idea of zero waste is only being projected to young people. Us adults, our habits are too ingrained and will never change. So it is the young people that get this message of zero waste, take possession of the resource, pass it into the future. If I take a cup and put it into a trash bag, it is immediately changed to garbage, although it is the same and it has stigma attached to garbage. Ooh, terrible. Semantic differences with merely a movement of the hand of a few centimeters can turn something from a product into something not desirable. So if we change that paradigm and change the language and pass this material on to the next person rather than a machine or a system, because people take these things apart. Brazil is doing a wonderful job under Rodrigo Sabatini, uh, Novo Cieclo. Down there, they're putting a lot of money in to try and make Brazil look really, really good for the Olympics and the world soccer. But around the world, Paul Martinson in Sweden is doing a lot of work all over Europe. And Europe is responding to zero waste as a way of keeping this resource in play. When it goes to the dump, then it's the property of conglomerate businesses and governments who do not move swiftly enough to capture or to preserve the material. They just want it gone. I had to think that one through. I got the idea. I ran the Berkeley, California landfill along with Dan Knapp and Bob Beatty and Steve Drobinski and Mary Lou Vandeventer, 79 and 80. I was the compost guy. And Urban Ore still is alive today doing a million six in recyclables from doors, windows, toilets, mirrors, rugs, anything you bring in, they'll actually buy instead of you don't even have to go to the dump. But in those early days, we stayed like hawks where people were dumping and picking out good things, all the bicycles, all the screen doors, all the aluminum, everything. It was a tremendous success, but we had a fire. It started, and I ran to the big old caterpillar, and my friend Bob ran for the water truck, and I started digging, get it underneath that file and get it out on the surface. Oh, gosh, don't let us get caught. I don't, can't imagine the paperwork. We kept on pushing, and I was six, eight, ten feet down into this garbage and realized that it smelled awfully familiar. It smelled like sauerkraut, like silage for cows. It was pickled. And I realized then that it didn't need to biodegrade. If you kept water out of it and controlled the packing, the dump could be managed. Instead of this gross pile, it could be a public trust depository. 
the Rasji et al. of University of Arizona do garbology studies. They drill into the dumps and see what they can pick up. They have a newspaper that says Truman wins. Down there in Arizona, no water gets into the dump, and it's pickled. It keeps. You get up in Seattle or down in Florida where there's sand and a lot of, they allow water into it, it biodegrades. Now, that is taking stuff away from future generations and the future demands of recycling. Right now, it's a money loser. It's a warm, fuzzy feeling. It doesn't really go anywhere except aluminum and office paper pay for themselves. Garbage companies take cardboard and bury it out in the landscape just to get rid of it because the market fluctuates so badly. But 30 years from now, this will be a product. This will be something worth having. Why do you say 30 years from now? Talk about that. 30 years from now, we will be straining our acquisition of resources. Why 30 years? Why not 10 or 5? Oh, it's probably a habit I've had for 30 years. (laughs) (laughs) It should be happening now but I don't see things happening very swiftly. Let's take an application for the audience. Let's take somebody's home. So what should we be doing in our homes? For those of us that live in homes, let's talk about that. So the way to move into this transition point in what we can do in the here and now, describe what we should do and what it would look like right now. The first two things that make up the most garbage are paper, and organic material. Those two together make up over 40% of what goes into the dump. So if you gathered all the paper and put it into its proper recycling containers or put it in that direction, your paper, your plastics, and all the the common recyclables that are available and going today uh, are simply getting much better from when they started. But the organic material, your lawn clippings, your hedge clippings, your coffee grounds, your kitchen garbage. I don't like saying compost them at home because nobody knows what composting is. It goes to sit out on a pile in the back and becomes a rat feeding station every night. You just don't go out enough at night to see how many we have. We have an epidemic of rats. So I don't like home compost piling. What I do like or would like to see is in schools teaching children how to manage their landscape, the landscape that they live in. So it isn't something that a gardener does. They can see a shrub beside their house and recognize it as a shrub instead of just this plastic imitation of life or something. The education of merely those two, those two would go so far to help communities. And it starts at just a house is is the small, but then the community, if the organic material can be taken to the community, the community then becomes a large enough scale where they can do things with them. The city of New York just started composting all food waste. They put in, what is it, a million tons, a million four tons at $80 a ton every year into their landfills. And 20% of that is manageable compost. You can take it out of the waste stream. Now, that sounds really good, but nothing works unless it is part of a curriculum. Back in the 60s and 70s, the school teachers told the children to do an energy audit in all the houses. And they found out that lights were on, left on all day, all night, all everything. 
and shamed their parents into turning off lights. And the same thing has to happen with recycling and organic material. We're taking a world of resource and with the flip of a finger turning it into a problem for us. It's still a resource. Recycling has to become better. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. No matter what the state of the economy is, there will always be time-honored traditions and special events. The Sterling Hut has been in business since 2008, offering a wide range of fantastic sterling silver products, including finely crafted mint julep cups, personalized baby shower gifts, photo albums, exquisite jewelry boxes and awards, and so much more. The Sterling Hut is an authorized Silver Star international reseller of fine silver products and anniversary gifts. The business is owned by Jewel and Bob Howard. If you would be interested in buying someone a gift of pure sterling silver or sterling plated silver, you can call 1-888-819-1009. Get a 15% discount by going to the Sterling Hut, the Sterling, S-T-E-R-L-I-N-G, Hut, H-U-T, dot com, and saying it's rainmaking time. They will honor a 15% discount for you. Beautiful sterling silver gifts for all of life's occasions. Manufactured in Italy and handcrafted by skilled artisans. They can also be engraved in sterling picture frames, oval and rectangular silver trays, champagne ice buckets, silver goblets, coffee and tea service, coffee pots, silver mugs, candelabras, and silver jewelry unrivaled in design and style. Go to the Sterling Hut at sterlinghut.com. And back to the show. I want to go back to separating out the organic material. So people live in a community. Now, what are they doing with this stuff? Where are they taking it? Since they're not going to a dump, where are they taking it? The size of the community makes all the difference in the world. Most cities and towns now have a, a green garbage container for organic material, yard waste. We're talking about once it's separated, though. Unfortunately, currently, it goes to the dump. So right now, if you could blink your eye and create something else, what would you create so people could take their organic material to this other location that's not the dump. If the towns could mandate that the organic material is placed on some ag land and ground up and processed there rather than being transported to the dump. Now, realize that the transport of this material is worth probably 10 times more than the material itself. What does it cost to drive a bale of hay 10 miles? Now, the bale of hay is worth nothing, really. But the transportation is, and so the transportation of this organic material 20, 30 miles to a dump far outweighs any, almost, what a waste. What a waste, the truck and all these, and all the things, if it could be taken to a local place and a regular agricultural tractor, common, probably available from the tractor dealer in that town, financed by a bank in that town, the town then gets all of that money. And this organic material can be part of the biofuel. It's only a small part of it that's not straight cellulose. And it's the fine stuff. Once you screen it, the fine stuff deserves to go back to the land, and they can burn the inside wood. It's the bark and the leaves and the twigs that I want for the soil. 
The rest of it is cellulose. It's carbon. They can go burn it. And that is a market that is accelerating rapidly. In Germany, they are forced now. It's by law. They have to clean up the litter that they leave in the forest when they're logging. That has to be brought out to the landing, ground up, and sent for fuel. What do you see happening with respect to the transportation issue of excess economy, servicing something it really shouldn't have to service at that level? In other words, you know, you have long drives with this waste taken from point A to point B. So is there an easier, more efficient way, you said, to localize it so people could bring their waste to a local location? What would it look like? It's not just bringing it to a tractor. It's bringing it to what? An open field. Okay. Preferably a farmer because he can use it. Farms do not have to go through the miles of regulation that the word composting deposits upon you. The word composting was associated semantically with the shit processing industry. (laughs) You mean manure? No, I mean shit. Okay. Uh, The sewage. In the 50s, they were trying the great thing to compost this manure and make it a, and the ship, sewage, sludge, biosolids, whatever you want, to make it usable for landscape. Of course, the sewage lagoon and engineering firms and cities did not want change. They didn't want this new guy on the block, this composting thing. So they made the composting guys jump through a million hoops saying that, oh, no, well, the temperature isn't this right and there's Oh, you wouldn't believe it. Watching it was fascinating. But finally, the mixing of the wood chips and the sewage sludge got down to a science. The temperatures and the duration to kill E. coli and all of the diseases that would come from shit were finally straightened out, and it became a very large business. But a casualty of that was the word compost. If you use the word compost in any context, you are liable to all the rules and regulations for the shit business. Even if that's what people were doing? Yeah. You just couldn't use that word? Well, because legally, then you would have to have a liner. You'll have to do temperatures. You have to have monitors. Government people come out with clipboards, make checks on the things, and and all you're doing is you're really just piling up sticks grinding them down, and they will naturally heat up and cool down, and then what you have is a pile of mulch, not compost. Compost is a fertilizer, and stuff rotting in the field is now called composting. The word changed. It used to require the compost, it heated up once, and it was turned, heated up again, and then turned a third time to stabilize. And that was a six-week process. And compost should be that, but Semantically now it has broadened itself so that anything lying in the field is composting its way back to the ground. And if you use the word compost in a proposal to do yard waste, then you have invited in the entire government body of law dealing with sewage sludge. I used to think of mulch and compost as one in the same efforts. No, no. Mulch is only possible if you keep your sense of humus. <laughs> yeah, what a change. The shift in language and semantics is just something we have to deal with. So we say yard waste processing, worked with a company, biothermic stabilization. We said that there's a heating process, 
but it's just to stabilize it so it won't catch on fire if we have a big pile. If you have a big pile of coffee grounds from like Nestle's processing plant in Stockton there, <laughs> caught on fire. And a friend of mine was running it at the time. He said, I had a heck of a time getting it out. This is like a cigar butt. 300 feet deep in coal mines underwater, the fires are still burning, taking their oxygen from the water. Peat fires up in Sacramento and Stockton Delta, 30 feet underwater and burning. That's what's happening in your dumps. The dump in Kona, when I was still there, had 17 known fires. And this could be alleviated through what you're recommending. Because it's in a, an indiscriminate piling, our garbage thing. The paradigm is, is just throw it away. And we haven't seen it as a resource. We don't see it as valuable because we have put this onus of, oh, garbage. Ew, stink. And it's irrational, but it's culturally subliminal. That's very articulate. Talk about some of the people who have been in the zero waste business and how they're doing. Well, <laughs> one of my favorites, Richard Anthony and Associates out of San Diego. Talk about him. Well, I met him. He was a recycler from the very first days. We met at a conference in Lake Tahoe somewhere in the early 70s on composting. Cliff Humphreys, one of the people, the earliest guy, the guy that, that made the march on Sacramento, and I think it was, gosh, late 60s or early 70s, through every city in the Central Valley marched on Sacramento to get recycling funded and approved of as, as this is something we must do. But he's the one who turned me on and says, who owns it? After you gather it and sell it, okay, you can do that. But who owns the rest of this garbage? Whose is it? It should be ours, not a company. You know, it should belong to us as a people. Rick Anthony, Dan Knapp, and Mary Lou Vandeventer, Urban Ore. It's been going for, good Lord, started in 78, I think. Dan had got his feet into the business up in Willamette County, Eugene, Oregon, their dump had to shut down, and he managed an interim dump and started splitting them, save things apart, developed his 12 categories of garbage, which I'll send to you. That would be great. But then Urban Ore started working on the landfill face and now has a great building over near Gilman Street in Berkeley. I can't remember the address. I haven't been there in a while. Bob Beatty, the other one of the other particulars in there, now works in Philadelphia at Burns Recycling in North Philly, always finding new ways to separate and give value to materials that are so indiscriminately thrown away. Construction and demolition debris now gets to go to a separate place to because it's wood that can be ground up. The classifications are becoming more defined. Susan Hubbard, Nothing Left to Waste, in Minneapolis, done good work starting this more enlightened recycling. The lowest form of work that we have here in America, highest turnover, is garbage pickers on recycling lines. Unwholesome, you have to wear a mask and you're splitting out these things. And That's where I see, we were talking about the new dump in Hilo, Hawaii, while I was living over there on a the big island. And I asked, well, if you want a materials recovery facility, how many people here 
want their sons and daughters working at this materials recovery facility in that polluted air and all of that. And not a person raised their hand out of 100 people in the audience. So I said, why would you want to condemn anybody to it? That's where my 30 years come from. Because the market isn't developed enough and the prices aren't high enough. Because the materials that come out of it don't make money. They will in the future, but they don't now. They will in the future with a vision like yours. It don't have to be my vision. There'll be enough money in it. People go for it (laughs) by themselves. Talk about the Prince of Denmark and why he came to California. (laughs) Carl Vett. Oh, my, my, my. He was a friend and associate of Rudolf Steiner. Steiner was old. I mean, Steiner died in 1929 or something. He developed the biodynamic farming system that really helped in the industrialization of Europe. In 1825, 75% of the people lived on the land in Europe. In 1875, only 25% of the people lived on the land. The truck gardens and gardening outside cities became a huge industry. And he developed this composting. And back in those days, understanding what plants wanted was quite a trick. But he did observe that the piles of manure, they used piles of manure to heat greenhouses so that they would stay warm and who could bring out the first snow piece of the year and those things. But he also noticed that there were no diseases after this manure had been through this heating process. You could plant your tomatoes in it, and there weren't any diseases left over. And they put that together along with Sir Albert Howard in India to found this composting. comes from the word compote, like fruit. You mix everything together and cook it. So biodynamic farming was spreading around the world. Young Carl Vett was a, uh, oh, a 20-year-old uh, working with Steiner and went Uh, was sent around the world to help people. And so he turned up in San Marcos, California, when we were living down there. We were living next to this school of the natural order. My grandfather called it the school of the natural odor, uh, (laughs) studying philosophy, but they also really had a composting program. Their garden was what convinced me that, wow, this stuff really, really, really does something. So... Carl, I would accompany him, taking temperatures of this stuff and everything. And then he left. We moved from there. We went to Germany, so we lost track of him. And composting was just kind of in my life, small bits and understanding bits of it until I got out of the Army into the tree business and saw that the dumps and shredding was not taking this, what I knew was a valuable resource, was being thrown into the dump, and I realized, oh my gosh, I have to find something about that. So I went to Cal Poly San Luis on the GI Bill and studied through stacks, indexes, found that composting, mulching was not happening anywhere outside of tongue oil plantations and some places in Asia. That's when I started to really approach cities like Santa Barbara, We did a demo for Leon Smith, who was running the solid waste department. Oh, my gosh, 1976. How was that received? They loved it. I just couldn't keep up with the flow. It was uh, over 100 trucks a day in the tractor, and I just, it was was amazing. Are you saying that the demand was too great for you? Yeah, 125 trailers, trucks, pickup, big trucks, loads of brush. 
a day coming out of Santa Barbara to the transfer station at Tahigas. Uh, <laughs> it's just I couldn't keep up with it. With the tractor, I had a 100-horsepower tractor and an orchard shredder, and it was just more than the tractor could do. And so after two weeks, I says, okay, fine. <laughs> this project is over. I had torn up all four tires. I <laughs> tore, the, tore the gas tank off and other things. I just wasn't prepared for the violence of the work. But it was <laughs> it was interesting. Talk about the shredders today. Has there been any kind of advanced technology or developments in the way the shredders are made? Oh, yeah. Talk about that. Tractors only came onto the agricultural scene in the 30s and 40s and the rototiller in the late 40s. Malabar farms, contour plowing and the stuff from the Depression. Farm tractors started uh, having beaters that could take this brush apart from light prunings like in orchards, from grape prunings, just nothing but strings. And you could drive kind of like a lawnmower over that and, and then take them apart and so you wouldn't have to... They would add to the soil, and uh, you wouldn't have to burn them. That developed steadily until there were machines that could take a 100-horsepower tractor, and the tractor's horsepower came up, and the hammers were 5 pounds. There were 35-pound hammers sitting in like a mower that they would drive over it with. That worked pretty well, but then finally there was this turn to rigid, not swinging hammers, rigid, and with carbide, high-wear tips. You see these machines out there grinding up asphalt on the road, making them new. And those have carbide tips so they can deal with hitting those rocks and all of that. And so these carbide tips, the one FECON uh, incorporated out of Cincinnati put together this, they call it the bullhog. It was a major game changer because the hammers would last up to a thousand hours. It could mow trees eight and 10 inches in diameter. It could clean up kudzu. It could do palmetto down in Florida. It turned into the all-around shredder developed out of agriculture and forestry, and this appeared on the suburban scene. Made small enough now for a bobcat or one of these skid steers. They can take down and they can mow sagebrush. They can mow mesquite, all kinds of things, fire dangers, land clearing, suburban cleanup like in Chicago where they have to mow lots that have been abandoned so that people can't hide there. That really changed the industry. Now there's about 20 other competitors that FECON is still trying to maintain market share on. <laughs> but yes, the shredders have become, and the ones for yard waste were in the early days machines modified for dairy farms for grinding hay up to finer particles so that the cows could eat it better. Now they are up to a million and a half dollars and 600 horsepower, and they are very expensive. And now for that $750,000 for a small one or, you know, a million six or a million more, I could buy 10 tractors and put them in the suburbs around the city, and there would be no brush going to the dump. That's exciting. You know, we have to have a paradigm change, and... These big machines are too expensive to run, so I think it's just finally getting into that niche, getting into that mindset that it has to be a big machine. Well, the other thing is that when you change a paradigm, when you have a paradigm change, what most people don't know is that your process for moving and doing things is going to change critically. And so this is about a process change that is an outflow of the paradigm change, which manifests itself in what you just said. 
So the shift would be you're not getting a shredder. You're not paying a million six for a large shredder. You're not waiting to that step of the process. You're coming in with a tractor locally to handle the waste. Then you're, you're adding jobs. Yes. It's a living for a family. Not only can it do the yard waste, you can put a forklift on it and it can move stuff around in the city. It can help load trucks, dig sand or clean out. Agriculture tractors are simply multifaceted machines. And we would do so much better to have ag tractors locally financed, locally bought, locally serviced. You don't have to have a guy fly in to, to handle a, some part that's missing or won't run, and here you got this million-five machine that's just sitting there. Now, not all ten tractors that you bought with that would be dead at any one time. Sounds really exciting. Yeah, it's just getting it... Uh... <laughs> it's getting the first one going, right? Well, we've had a few going. Four years we did in Ojai, California, we did brush shredding. Took 22% of the flow that came through the transfer station there in Ojai. But the Ventura Regional County Sanitation District was disbanded by the California Waste Management Authority for being a bit corrupt. We were never able to move forward within that system. So I left, I went to Hawaii and did two yard waste projects well, three in all, one in Hilo and two in Kona. But we did get the new landfill at Puhuanahulu. We did some siting work there to modify what the old paradigm was. Because for Hawaii, we cannot define recycling by container loads. It has to be a barge load. So you have to store up enough stuff. With the containers, the shipping is taking up every bit of the value in the material. If you have a barge load, then the material is worth something. But ship mats and lines was, was the very first. We started Recycle Hawaii back then, and we gathered from all over the West Coast, Kona Coast. We gathered newspapers. Everybody gave them to us, and we filled up a 20-foot container with much effort. We got $150 for it. The shipping off the island cost 130 And so... I was seeing that, well, there's not much gain there except for the shipping company. So that changed my mind a bit. And we, let's see if we can get some area where we can hold this stuff until we have a barge load. In the Hilo dump, which they're closing, is right next to the harbor. That was a good prospect. And this new dump they were putting in at Pu'uanahulu on the west side of the island near a harbor at Kwai Hai was another possibility. We got the dump at Pu'uanahulu separated, but Hawaii is Asia with the U.S. dollar overlay. Things happen differently there. That process is probably moving forward. I've been gone from Hawaii for 13 years now. Back in the days of selling shredders, the company that had the shredders also sold sprayers, and the sprayers were a revolution at the time 40 years ago. 10% of the water, half the poison go twice as fast. And now they have so many competitors. They stopped doing business in 1988. But the concept of fog and irrigation and fertilization, lots of fertilization in the San Joaquin Valley happens using sprayers because it gets into the tree's leaves right now instead of sprinkling this powder on the ground and turning on the irrigation and waiting for two weeks for it to get there. I started thinking about that as a way of irrigating desert crops, seed crops like tamarind, 
carob, jojoba, uh, locust trees, acacia, mesquite. All of those are seed-bearing crops that could be enhanced by fog farming. And so that's where my efforts are going this spring. September off to, I hope, a solid garbage conference in Sweden. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Put your product on the map. You are competing with millions upon millions of people that are competing for everybody's attention. The internet is a fantastic place to meet people, to dialogue, to exchange information, and to share. It's a great place for commerce, but it's highly saturated. Most of us really don't function like we're in a global commercial situation. The landscape is global, and that means that you have to utilize different tools to get out in front of people. Banner ads are fantastic when they're done properly and they're placed properly with shows that you are aligned with, with environments that are right for your product and service. However, they're limited. Using voice to parlay your product, service, or company is way more powerful when you have the attention of a distribution network. When people are listening to a show host regularly, people like that show host, plant your seed with them and let that host put your work in front of listeners. And if the advertisement is coherent and contextual, and it is succinctly and effectively delivered from a voice that people like and resonate with, you have way more leverage than just placing banner ads. So I'd like to invite you, those of you that like my voice, that would like me to design advertisements for you, and they can be placed with its rainmaking time or even on your own website, call us at 626-398-8652. Let us put your company on the map of everybody's focus. And back to the show. Talk a little bit more about the fog and irrigation, because I don't think for most of us it's even in our consciousness. How does it work? Well, you're in California, and uh, you wake up in the morning in the middle of summer, and it's foggy. Or you wake up, and things are just glistening brightly with dew. That is the maritime air that actually irrigates all the ceanothus, the sage, the bay. All the trees that live along the California coast drink this fog. When we were climbing the eucalyptus windbreaks in the Oxnard Plain, some days there was so much fog condensed on the trees and on their leaves that they were too slippery to climb. Millions of gallons get deposited on California's coastal leaves every day, almost. So I got to thinking, well, if that irrigates that, why don't we move that out into the desert just a step more by making a fog? I took one of the machines, the sprayers, up to the Cuyama Valley, which is above Bakersfield, Taft, Maricopa, way up there, 4,500 feet, because in the summer, tree business wasn't so good, so I went and helped out with the alfalfa crop. And we had to sit outside at night with three tractors, trying to stay warm, waiting for the dew to fall so that the alfalfa would get up to 15% moisture, anything under that, and the leaves would fall off when you moved the plants. It would shatter. So we had to have the moisture. And I said, well, enough of this being out here at night. Why don't I go down there and get one of them sprayers and see if that works? 
Well, we did that, and 20 minutes later, we were bailing. We saved hours and hours and hours of work, and worked for much, much longer. But the thing that surprised us, we thought we collapsed the dew layer, because there was more liquid down than we put out. Later, Jack Patchy came to the ranch up there. He just went out and just took his truck and just sprayed water on him. Didn't have enough money left over for a bigger sprayer, but he had a water truck. But nevertheless, wetting the hay in the night has become standard since then. That was 40 years ago. Out here in the desert, they have steamers that make steam and steam the alfalfa just before it gets into the baler so that they can bale it successfully. Background there. But we are growing ever more people and we're growing ever more deserts. So we should learn how to farm these deserts. From my experience in California, I move, want to move out a little bit into like Baja, California, like Arizona. Up here in Nevada on the Utah border uh, where I live, we're up high. I'm at 6,000 feet in the mountain. The oldest trees in the world are a couple of miles from me, up at 10, 12,000 feet. Sky islands, they're called. They're the moisture from all of this air passing by is captured by the altitude. Uh, I thought I'd like to bring some of that down and broadcast it into a valley so that the fog would come down and hit these trees that are used to being in the desert and used to drinking from their leaves any time that it was possible. Summer thunder showers wet the leaves. They don't really get into the ground. And so I had to start thinking of how do the leaves work? The stomata, they take in this fine mist, how many thousand leaves on a tree? That amounts to a few quarts of water. That's enough to sustain them. And so if I add a little bit of compost tea, then that is also beneficial. And it's really complex stuff. It isn't like an NHC or a, like salt formula. To write the formula for a handful of compost, it'd take a book. And so here is this huge, long-chain polymer that is being sent into the plant world where they know how to handle it. It's richer by far than a fertilizer like a nitrogen or a thing like you put on your lawn, you know, and you sprinkle those little pebbles out there and water them in. Well, this stuff is so much more complex. And when you water that stuff in, the urea pebbles, they go right through the soil like they're like comets screaming through there. There's nothing to hold them, nothing to stop them. But if you take this organic stuff, it's long, long chains. It gets held up in the first foot. So... I kept on thinking about that. Now, the fog farming, mm, we're starting to run some tests and see just how much that could move. Hoping to try it on lavender out here because the deer don't like it and it don't take much water. Sounds like you're having a great time with it, and it sounds like it's an idea whose time has come. Dreaming is always fun. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like you're doing more than dreaming, sir. (laughs) Thank you. Is there anything else you wish to say? Well, I thank you and your efforts to try and make some rain. (laughs) We don't try to make rain here. We make rain. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Daniel Hathaway, the Recycling King, and his vision for recycling and using our world's treasure of waste. If you would like to reach him, you may call him directly at 775-234-7265. It's been a great pleasure and an educational experience to have you on the show. Thank you for all you are and what you're doing. I look forward to talking with you in the future. Thanks so much. Thank you. I look forward to meeting you as well.
It's rain-making time. It's rain-making time. That's right. 